Welcome to Hope Blooms, a podcast from the Early Pregnancy Loss Association. At EPLA, we seek to support women and families suffering early pregnancy loss by providing resources, education, and community. It is our vision that no one suffers miscarriage alone. Welcome back to Hope Blooms. I'm Emily Carrington, the Executive Director of EPLA. And with us today is Dr. Jordan Wales to talk to us about his experience suffering loss with his wife. We had Catherine on a few months ago, and we think it's really important to talk to the dads too and their perspective. So welcome, Jordan. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. So can you just tell us a little bit from your perspective? Let's start from the beginning. Um, I know we had we had Catherine a few months ago, but let's start this story fresh from the beginning about the pregnancy and the loss and, and what happened. Thank you. Um, we were, I was in graduate school and uh, we already had a child. He was three years old, um, a boy, and that was, that was going well. We lived in a small apartment in uh, South Bend, Indiana. It was very cold and we wanted another child. We wanted to have a second child. I was kind of nervous about it because I was trying to finish my dissertation and I turned out to be not as expert at that as I thought I would be. I, I did finish eventually. <laughs> And uh, so we, we wanted to make it very uh, romantic and everything. And a, a friend of ours took care of our child. We went off to a hotel. This, this was South Bend. So the only hotel was the, the Notre Dame Hotel. But it was nice. And uh, we, uh, we watched the movie The Tree of Life, which was showing in a theater. And we wanted to go conceive a life. So we did. <laughs> and, uh, and then it was funny. My wife said to me a few weeks later when, when we knew we were pregnant she said we're really good at this really good at having babies making babies (laughs) that sounded fine to me and then I guess it was about four months she went in for a checkup and uh, I was doing something else I was with our son we were playing in the apartment together and then she called me to come over because she said she said I don't know if she said something's wrong or, or if she just said, come over here and need you to come over. And the hospital was right behind our apartment building, which was conven- con- convenient. The doctor's office was there. And so I just was able to walk uh, down the street to the doctor's office. And I guess I left our son with a neighbor that he was friends with. And Catherine is lying there with the ultrasound tech and, and Catherine is crying. And uh, I don't really remember. I remember the doctor was moving things around, and, and you know they they do that thing where they push all the buttons and measure things, and and so they were making lots of measurements, and you know I don't really remember it actually. I, I mean I do. Let, let me try to think about this. I think what happened is when I first walked in through the door, I saw that Catherine was crying, and I said, "What's wrong?" And she said, "The baby is dead." And then they were making all the measurements. And I wasn't really sure what had happened. So we went home. And I remember that it was very important to Catherine noticing that uh, the baby's leg was messed up. It was not fully formed. And because she had had a, she'd had a deformed leg when she was born. And they, they fixed it. That was, she felt... I don't know, close to the baby there. 
Do you remember leaving the doctor's office then? No, or how you... that's the part I'm trying to remember. I don't remember leaving the doctor's office. I do remember that he explained that her heart had failed and there was too much fluid in her body and that it, it, the, the, so her heart had stopped beating. And I think we spent a lot of time trying to figure out when she had died. Although at that point we didn't know whether it was a boy or a girl. And um, I remember Catherine talking a lot about when the last time she felt the baby move, when, when that had been. We must have gone home. I think, I don't know. You'll have to no, listen to okay. her podcast to find some of the details <laughs> here. But I, I just remember some scenes that we, I remember picking up our three-year-old boy from our neighbor friend. And I think the neighbor held Catherine and was crying. So I guess that means we called her to tell her what had happened. Although we went back to the hospital for the for the stillbirth, stillborn babies, for the dead baby to be born. So I might be remembering when we picked up our son after that because we left him with the same friend. Though I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, I think the fog of grief is is real. Um, yeah. And it's interesting, you know, as different people, what you remember and, and what you what you don't remember. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's pretty accurate. What were you, you know, without, you don't need to, you know, without the play-by-play, and, and that's what's weird about memory, right? But do you remember what you were feeling or thinking or absorbing at that time in those sort of immediate about your wife, about the baby? Was it a surprise? Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a surprise. My wife once said that I made some mention about like one day there won't be poop all over the wall in the bathroom every so often, you know, from a child who thinks he's wiped and hasn't done a very mm-hmm. efficient job. And she said, well, I really hate that kind of thing. She said, but when, when you walk into a bathroom that a kid is <laughs> fouled, you think, oh, I know what to do here. And so I think, I think I kind of felt that way that, I felt secure in the feeling of, okay, now the next step is I comfort my wife. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to pick up our son. And then I felt confident in the, in the task of, of psychologically assisting others, mm-hmm. which I suppose was a way of, it enabled me to dodge my own grief. Mm-hmm. Because I could just think, well, I'm going to hold her hand and be a really good husband and and take all this information in and in that way be able to encompass the whole situation right? and not feel swallowed up by it. So, yeah, what was I feeling then? It's kind of um, hazy to me. I should have talked with her about it this morning, but it's kind of hazy on what the time was between that day with the ultrasound and the between that day with the ultrasound and the and the birth mm-hmm. i guess it was probably only a matter of days maybe two or three days or four days mm-hmm. four days kind of sticks in my mind so maybe that was it and 
It was a very hard time. I remember interactions we had. There was a lot of distress. Mm -hmm. And I don't really remember. There was some sort of altercation or maybe just a lot of emotion. And my wife said she hated me at one point, but I don't remember what that was about. I mean, (laughs) we know what it was actually about. It was grief. And they told us that the hormones would be going crazy because it's like turning off a car while you're on a highway. So the car starts skidding all over the place. And so that was really hard for her. It was really hard for me. And we, we didn't, we didn't have, we we had very different instincts in how to handle, how to express emotion and how to deal with it together. And, uh, I like to talk thing to talk about things a lot. Mm-hmm. Sometimes she likes to sort of, at least at that point, you know, this was many years ago, a decade ago, she didn't really like to talk about things quite so much. It felt. So I, I felt like, well, okay, so she's already feeling all these things. I shouldn't talk much about what's going on with me. Mm-hmm. But not talking much about what's going on with me also meant I just decided not to think about it very much mm-hmm. and be an expert and, never really been into the I was raised by parents who came of age in the 60s in California so I was raised with a polemic against being the strong silent type but it's actually pretty easy to slip into that role when one wants to be the expert and the caretaker and so that's what kind of what I did I didn't talk much about it but then I was sad so then we went back to the hospital and had the birth my wife wanted to watch the Kenneth Branagh Hamlet because in the part where Hamlet's ghost comes back, I don't know why, but I guess because we had a dead relative in the room with us. <laughs> but it was that's a pretty scary movie at the beginning. There's a lot of screaming from the ghost and roaring and earthquakes. And the nurses thought we were watching a horror movie. Pretty dark, yeah. Yeah. And so eventually Catherine agreed that we should watch something else. So we watched Into Great Silence about the Cistercian monks. And there was a scene in it where one of the very elderly monks in his 90s was talking to the interviewer about dying. And they asked him something like, do you think about it much? And he said, well, I don't really think about it, but I think about it all the time or something like that. That's how it felt to me anyway when I was watching it, that he was saying he both did and didn't think. And I guess that's kind of how it was for me. And then he said, he said, but... But when I think about death, I remember he talks about the death of his own father, which was over half a century earlier. And he said, he said, but I know it was something like, but when my father died, I know that he found a father referring to meeting Mm -hmm. God. And he said, so I know that when I die, I will find a father. And that was very comforting to me to think about our child finding a father after death. I'm a sort of early medieval Christianity historical theologian, and they really didn't have a very clear notion of what happens to babies that die who aren't, you know, that die in the womb or die without baptism. And there are lots of different views. And I liked uh, Thomas Aquinas kind of this notion well, look, they don't have any personal sin of their own, and they don't, nor do they, nor are they united to Christ. So they're not going to see the face of God. They're just going to sort of play for all eternity. That was appealing to me, mm-hmm. imagining our little kid, right? Because you don't go through life and mature in that fashion. So perhaps there are other mysterious ways. I do believe in God and 
I, I, you know, Jesus says that not one hair of our head is not counted. And so I assume that my child is counted as well. What that looks like, I don't know. But, and that was kind of upsetting to me too. So I just clung to this image of the finding a father. Mm -hmm. Did you find yourself leaning into your sort of academic knowledge? You know, I, I watched in our own loss, Adam, also an academic, though not a theologian. So that like lean into suddenly he's like reading the canons of Dort. Not suddenly, he always does. But, um, <laughs> you know. We're, we're, as one does. You know, as one, as one is, is one to do. Um, but he was leaning into these sort of doctrinal and intellectual things that he had always held deal. Did you find yourself running to them or away from them or separate? Like, was there something sort of, I think you've already sort of touched on this, like you were, you were obviously couldn't ignore mm -hmm. and they were doing some speaking, but did you find yourself in sort of a hyper intellectual or was that sort of like, no, we need. I did that with the, the pursuit of expertise concerning mm -hmm. my wife's grief, concerning what had gone wrong. After the birth, we met with a, I don't know, I think it's called a genetic counselor who was going to tell us what went wrong. And she was missing one of the sex chromosomes. So it was X and, and nothing. And uh, I, I was worried about this, like worried that it was my chromosome that was missing and that <laughs> I sort of like delivered a bad batch of genetic material. And, and I had all these theories. I'd been at a, I'd been at a like, theology camp thing for grad students and we drank a lot of beer in the evenings and I thought well maybe that's what had messed up my sperm or something and and the Jeanette counselor looked, looked me in the <laughs> eye he said you did not do this America would be a barren wasteland <laughs> if your theory were correct <laughs> Beer was and so that was uh that was reassuring to me but yes that kind of pursuit of intellectual mastery concerning the the theological side of it I actually leaned toward grief and desolation and and the most uh, frightening, or not frightening, but just like unconsoled, I guess frightening, uh, speculations within the early Christian tradition about unbaptized babies. And like Augustine says, well, you know, they as all humans participate in the sin of Adam and they will be punished for it, but with lighter punishments. It's not really clear what he means. <laughs> That's not very comforting. No. But I think that actually that sort of theological mystery which had in it the possibility, uh, one of the strands of thought, some of the strands of thought in the tradition are pretty negative about the fate of unbaptized babies. And I think that actually gave me a way of remaining, of maintaining my comprehensive expertise concerning the situation and giving myself a reason to grieve. This was upsetting to Catherine because she really just wanted to say, no, 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 you know, our baby is, you know, like frolicking in a bed of rose petals right now. And <laughs> right. And uh, everything's fine. She wanted everything to be fine. And I kind of wanted to hold open the door to everything not being fine at all. And I think that was primarily a way of me wanting to be able to acknowledge that I wasn't fine. And so that was, yeah, that was, that was difficult for well, us. And I think the finality of, of death is sort of, right, hard, but also needs addressed. And like you said, to, to I think that's interesting to, to fully grieve something of that finality. Yeah. And like you said, there's also, there's, I think, 
you know, a lot of mystery and, and hope and there. And I think there is a lot of room for that. But I think there's also coming, facing death. Yes. In its, in its finality and reality that is hard to do. Yeah. Because it's like, a, I, I just think of the um, storybook, The Velveteen Rabbit. I guess they have to they have to burn his rabbit at the end, and then I think they get him a new one, and he doesn't want it. Or I'm probably mixing several stories together. Maybe I, I'm just remembering maybe a story that my mom told me about a friend of hers or her experience that I mixed up with the Velveteen Rabbit. That somebody lost a toy bear, and the parents got the new bear. Like, look, but here's a new one, and the kid didn't want the new one. Well, one of the old one. And I think. <laughs> and so I didn't want. It wasn't it. It was definitely not the case that I didn't want my child to be happy wherever she was. I wanted her to be happy. But I didn't want the claim that she was happy to mean that I wasn't allowed to be sad. So instead, mm. I countered it with the ambiguity of the Christian tradition with a kind mm-hmm. of counterclaim of, but she might not be happy. And so I'm allowed to be <laughs> unhappy. And this kind of wrestling match right. in my own mind over what what was the state of the child was a kind of Again, it was a way of dodging the grief that I was feeling because either wow. I didn't feel my wife could handle it or I didn't feel I could handle it. And we didn't talk about it much. We didn't talk about it enough. And added to that, our parents were very upset. Our siblings mm-hmm. were very upset. And so she wanted to go see her parents as rapidly as possible to reassure them that she was okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, And that was her way of, I guess, becoming an expert and tending to someone else. And I wanted to oil the furniture before we left the, the wardrobe because there was no insulation in our building. It was really, you know, 10% humidity throughout the winter. And we had 16 humidifiers running and so that our skin would not crack mm-hmm. every morning. And so I, I just became convinced that the wardrobe, you know, the portal to Narnia was going to crack and be ruined <laughs> mm-hmm. if I didn't oil mm-hmm. it before we left. So I had to oil the wardrobe and she had to get home, you know, couldn't spare five minutes before our five-hour journey began because then her father would have to wait five more minutes before seeing that his daughter was okay. So I I think we were doing the same. We were all doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. She was saying, our daughter's fine, but my dad's not fine, so we have to go help him. Mm -hmm. And I was saying, our daughter might not be fine, and this wardrobe's definitely not going to be fine, (laughs) so we have to help the wardrobe. And each of us really just needed help and didn't know how to ask for it or think about it right right i think that's i think that's common right i mean and such a different such a different experience you know and to want to go home and to one's parents and you know yeah is of course understandable and you know she she told that story too and so i think it's you know sort of great to hear it from from both both sides (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this this of the things you remember. So how, you know, moving forward from that delivery, you know, did you did you end it, spend any time after after the baby was born? Did you any spend any time with her with the baby? Oh, yes. And there too I was wanting to kind of feel safe by understanding everything and I was oh, yeah. boy, I, I I was able to hold her body in the palm of my hand. The doctor thought it was a boy, but that turned out probably to be like the the intestinal cavity doesn't fully close at four months. So what he thought was a penis was actually the intestine. 
probably because the genetics came back and it was definitely a girl. But yeah, I was holding her wrapped up in in my the palm of my hand and her face looked so much like our son. It was recognizably a sibling to the child we had. And then, you know, her skin's not thick, so she started to dry out mm-hmm. and the skin started to crack. And it was like mm-hmm. the face was kind of slowly disappearing. It's mm-hmm. like she was melting or something. And she looked really beautiful. At first, it was this tiny little human being shining and like like a deep red, not scary red like blood, but more like like some kind of red stone that's mm-hmm. been carved. She looked like a red sculpture mm. of a baby with such a perfect little face. And then then she started to sort of, yeah, just kind of flatten out like her bones are very soft and everything so then she started to look a little like a, I don't know jello mold or something but sorry I don't want to be gross but it was and but it was really important to me to kind of witness this it was like the I don't want my the, the kid who wants to they say that kids should ought to be taken to funerals and ought to see the body mm-hmm. go into the ground and so I needed to see the body go into the ground or the form mm-hmm. the formlessness to to take over and hold hold her in my heart and in my memory. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of time holding her. And, and when Catherine was ready, Catherine held her too. And we took a lot of photographs and set her up on a little table and, and wrapped her up and put a little cross next to her head and prayed for her and prayed together. And that was really good. I think maybe we called someone on the phone. I don't know. And then afterwards, yeah, I think that we did fall into the, the doctor said, don't have another baby soon because you'll be trying to, he said, don't, don't engage in bargaining. And I wasn't really sure what he meant, but Mm -hmm. I think what he actually meant was don't think, don't think to yourselves, well, if we have another one, that will make it okay. Well, and I I think what you're saying about the Velveteen Rabbit, right, like is so true with with pregnancy loss, like, and I think it can be hard where someone says, you know, oh, you're young, you can have more. Right. <laughs> it's like that, that one is the, is the one I want things. Right. And, and, you know, even the matter of, of heaven, like, okay, so they're happy up there, but I wanted that one to frolic with me here. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, I think that can be, very messy as you move forward. But then I also understand having lost three before we had any, mm-hmm. I wanted those babies, but I also wanted my motherhood specifically mm. to sort of be restored. Mm. I had no one to mother. Mm-hmm. So that can be, I think there's a, a dissonance there mm-hmm. of I can't, I can't replace that baby, but I can hold babies. I need to hold a baby. I need mm-hmm. to hold any baby. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a baby to hold because I'm feeling this this emptiness and loss. There was something interesting that the doctor said because we had told our son that his sibling was a boy. We named him Theodore. And he would ask us about Theodore a lot and we'd talk about Theodore. And we had a funeral for Theodore. Theodore was buried. And then the genetic tests came back and, well, it was actually a girl. And we told our son this and he hadn't gotten to see her. All he had was the name in his imagination. Mm-hmm. And so he angrily insisted, he was three, he angrily insisted, no, Theodore is a brother. Theodore is a brother. Mm-hmm. And 
the pediatrician told us, don't argue with him about this. Just let it go. Answer any questions he asks and he'll, he'll come around in his own time. And he did. It was in the spring, maybe in March. So mm -hmm. all this happened in December. And then three months later or so, he was looking out the window at the snow. It was not spring. And the snow was falling. He was watching the snow fall. And he said, Theodore was a sister. Oh. And I said, yes, she was. He said, yeah, she was a sister. I said, do you miss her? He said, I miss, I miss Theodora. Because that's what we had retitled mm -hmm. her. And uh, mm. so he, he accepted it. And I think that, yeah, if I just think about things I wished we had done differently, but I don't really blame us for doing them the way we did. We just didn't know any better and we were really distraught. But if we had given ourselves that time, Mm -hmm. instead of me trying to lock down like what happened to my child mm -hmm. after death but if, if in the midst of all that if yeah if we'd given ourselves time to kind of look out the window at the snow falling and not have to render an answer about things so quickly mm -hmm. that would have been good and really that's something that we realized years later and that you know i like to talk about feelings but i realized i've been pretty good at i'd done it fairly good job of talking myself out of having feelings mm, about mm -hmm. it for a while. And so it was years later that my wife and I realized that it was important to talk about this. And part of that, part of that journey of grieving and acceptance has been her interview and my interview. And so, yeah, so thank you for that opportunity. Well, absolutely. Well, we are at the end of this interview. So thank you very much. I think it's so important to, tell these stories and to hear these stories. And it's just such a gift for us to, to listen to these stories from many. So thank you so much for uh, your willingness to share today. And we uh, really appreciate having you. So thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, this has been an episode of Hope Blooms. Join us next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Hope Blooms, a podcast from the Early Pregnancy Loss Association. To learn more about how we and you can support women suffering early pregnancy loss, visit our website at miscarriagecare.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening.